For the first time ever, PCCA's International Seminar is going fully virtual this year, from November 5th to the 7th. We look forward to bringing you an agenda full of valuable, relevant content and many chances to network virtually. Make sure to register today at PCCAInternationalSeminar.com or call into the PCCA customer service line for assistance. Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. My name is Mike Delisio. I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm joined by co host Sebastian Dennison. Hey, Seb, how's it going? Very good. I just want to say, hey, and that will be a germane uh, discussion as you keep going. Awesome. Um, Seb, you and I have had a chance to think about certain topics that are truly appealing to everybody. And outside of the pandemic and, you know, a lot of interest still goes back to veterinary compounding. And we had a lot of requests for veterinary compounding, uh, I guess you can say formulations and talking points going back into last year. And we, we asked Deb Clark to, to kind of host that episode. And that was probably almost a year ago. And now realizing that there was a lot of opportunity, not necessarily with small animal compounds, but obviously looking at some larger animals like horses, we thought she would make the, the best guest to, to bring back to a mortar and pestle. So without further ado, member of our clinical services team, Ms. Deborah Clark, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Seb. I appreciate the opportunity to share this time with you guys and talk about my favorite animal, the horse. Yeah, and this is going to be very different. You know, when we, we speak about HRT, we talk about pain management or low-dose naltrexone. Um, it's, it's obviously always taking the human patient into consideration. As I mentioned last year, we had the opportunity to sit down with you and talk about veterinary compounds and what that meant to you know, the head of the household or the individuals that were picking up their daily prescriptions for their child, for themselves, and then obviously for the, the small furry critters. Um, this is obviously a very, very different ballgame. We're talking about different dosage forms. We're talking about very large quantities in some cases. Um, and then individuals that possess maybe one or two horses or multiple. So Deb, what got you started in equine compounding? And I think that's probably the best way to kick things off. Give people a lot better impression of, you know, what your background is and and how you you call the horse your favorite animal. Okay, so just to give you guys, for those of you who don't know me and and didn't read the little bio on the the members only website, um, where I live is in, um, it's in Southwest or somewhat southwest part of North Carolina. And this area is more of an equine um, heavy area. There's a lot of um, riding showing, you know, a lot of, a lot of horses in this area. And uh, my daughter started riding when she was six years old and she rode um, hunter jumper dressage up until she was about 16 years old. So I've been around it a lot um, from that standpoint. I also always um, wanted to ride myself, never got the opportunity because my parents didn't have the financing, but uh, I finally started um, training hunter jumper recently. So I, it's, it's always been a, a love of mine. I just, 
you know, have a love for horses. I just can't explain it. It just kind of happened. Um, in my pharmacy where I used to compound, we did do a lot of veterinary compounds. And um, I did have one uh, equine vet, Dr. Puckett. Smokey was his name. That's the name he went by. And he took care of a lot of the horses in this area. So I did a lot of things for him. So that's kind of how I got into it. So we know a lot of people are always saying, yeah, that compounding is so hard to get into. And, you know, we've got this sort of a couple of larger compounders that seems to take a majority of the, of the business. And that seems to be fair for the domesticated animals. But for areas that are equine heavy, in your speak, um, lots of horses in the area, lots of farms and, and opportunity to be involved in the horse community. Do you still see a lot of opportunity for compounding pharmacists to connect with, say, one or two vets and sort of start building a practice? Oh, yeah, it's it's a huge opportunity. It's like I said, with that one particular vet, I got to know him through a, a common acquaintance. And it's just like with marketing for any other part of veterinary medicine, whether it be small animal or, or exotic, you know, you want to build a relationship with that equine vet because your larger compounders are going to fill the more commonly um, prescribed medications. But an area where I see is really underserved is wound care. And if you look at horses that compete, as well as horses that work like a horse on a ranch or, you know, a horse that is part of the Metropolitan Police Force, they can run into things. Um, they can get in very tight spaces or just being in the pasture. They can run into a fence or a gate and, and you know, tear, tear their legs, you know, their cannon bone or the skin there or any other place where, you know, you're going to have a wound. And for animals that are show animals, um, their appearance is very, very important. Um, some of these horses, we're talking several thousand dollar worth horses, and I'm talking like in the thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. So that's basically a car on four legs. And so when it comes to value and they don't want to have scars, they don't want to have any type of disfigurement on this horse. And so, those veterinarians and those owners are looking for options to address those wounds and address what we call proud flesh formation. And that is a really underserved market. So I kind of want to start there. The, uh, the, the hooves, their hooves, they, they're, they get into all different kinds of things. They stand in dirt and muck a lot of times. And so you can imagine what kind of breeding ground that is for fungus and bacterial infections. So they are very fragile animals. And so there's a lot of opportunities. Um, even with the vet, it, you don't necessarily have to talk to the vet. When it comes to the horse's hooves, the farrier or what's known as the blacksmith is a great person to build a relationship with because they see the horses, they come in and shoe and, and treat their feet and they would be a great resource to connect with a vet to offer compounds which could be customized to the individual horse. So there's a lot of places to start and it just kind of blossoms from there. So if I was a, if I was a pharmacist and I'm like, okay, <clears throat> I'm interested in becoming more educated, what would be my very first step with respect to getting because I'm not going to go out and buy a horse and then learn from there. I think we, there's probably some better steps that I could take. So I'm going to kind of take you back to the first step. As a pharmacist, I want to learn. Where would you sort of point me first to start learning about the equine? Okay. 
So we have written, myself and Chris Simmons, we wrote the C4 Veterinary course, which is available online. Um, right now it just closed, but it's gonna open back up here in a few months. That is a great resource for basic knowledge. So you learn what people call horse speak, so that you can go into a group of horse owners or a group of equine veterinarians and be able to understand what they're talking about. Because if you look at a horse, there's a lot of different terminologies compared to other species in the veterinary world. So it's always good to know what the withers are or what a cannon bone is or what the, um, the coronary band is around the top of the hoof, those types of things. That's gonna make you um, present as a more educated practitioner and you'll be able to better help the veterinarian or the, the horse owner. So I would highly recommend going through that course. Now that course also encompasses dog, cat, ferret. Um, it also encompasses birds and some other exotic species, but it gives you a great base knowledge. The amount that you pay, you get a great return on your investment because it very well prepares you for um, practicing veterinary pharmacy. So once I've got the basics under control, how would I learn to start, uh, or how would I start learning about the market or the disease states? Like, because I know you've talked about the CVOR and the anatomy and those sort of pieces, but then how do I start thinking about applying this into my compounding practice? Because you, you were fortunate that you had someone who's already connecting with you, and you've already started talking about a few of them, but I, I'm still trying to literally flesh it out for people. Like, how do we learn more and continue? So to answer your question, Matt, the best way to learn, I think, is immersion. So I think it's always good to go and get to know maybe some of your local stable owners, um, maybe some local trainers. Um, I have now, I'm taking lessons obviously, but if you form a relationship with a trainer, they're gonna, that, they're a great source of information as to you know basic horsemanship where you learn what happens with horses. And to learn the disease states, it, you, you need to delve more into like carpenters, um, carpenters, no, not carpenters, Robinson, excuse me, wrong book. Robinson's um, Equine Medicine, it's a really great resource. And it goes more in depth into the actual disease states that you see more commonly, and even the uncommon disease states that you see in horses and the exact treatment. So from that, you can extract more information about the individual disease states within a horse and you know the challenges. They also talk um, in Robinson's about traumas, like um, accidents with trailers. Because when horses are transported, usually to, show, to and from shows, excuse me, they are trailered. And what I mean by that, for those of you who don't know what I mean by trailered is, the horses have to be loaded onto a trailer. And going into that narrow space, a lot of times will spook a horse and they may rear or they may jump or bolt and they can run into those doors and the doors are the, the sides of the stalls and they're metal. Again, they can cause all kinds of um, injuries. So that's, and they talk about how to treat those and also, you know, just different things that an equine vet sees. So if you want to delve into it more, then I would get a copy of Robinson's um, Equine Medicine. It's a great, great reference. Well, thank you. Because, yeah, I know our C4 program is phenomenal, and you and Chris have done an amazing job because I've already done that course. But, yeah, it's always better to kind of have like some other references that you mm -hmm. you also work with. And especially with that immersion sort of piece, um, 
I was fortunate. I grew up in an area where there were lots of horses. I worked on a dressage uh, championship, mucking stables. My sister had a horse. And so that, that experience and that exposure really does make things different for anybody. But not everyone can go out and find horses to, to start. Right. So, um, but then I guess this leads into the next part. We started talking about some of the markets and some of the opportunities. But what are some of the big things that people really need to be aware of? And we were starting to talk about this a little bit, but, you know, um, I really want to take care of racehorses. I really want to take care of police horses. I really want to take care of, like, the, the riding horses at the day camps. You know, people have different passions. And so what are some of the big sort of um, things that you should be aware of immediately getting into this market that you cannot read necessarily that people should be aware of? Okay, so if we're talking competitive horses, um, one of the really big things that you have to, t to be concerned about is um, substances that you can and cannot give to those horses. So it's just like with human athletes, you have to watch out for doping. Yes, this happens with equine athletes as well as human athletes. And the governing bodies of those particular um, sports are very, very, very explicit in their statements about they are not going to tolerate it. And what you have to look at is there's a couple of organizations, um, RCI, which is also known as Association of Racing Commissioners International, that's the governing body for racehorses. And then there's USEF or United States Equestrian Federation. Both of those, that particular governing body takes care of hunter jumper, dressage, equitation, those different types of competitive horses. And they have guidelines of drugs that can be used in competition and ones that cannot, as well as herbals. And I highly recommend you look at all of that. Um, if you go to their individual websites, they're going to have a lot of information for you and they do have a icon where you can actually pull up the list of what's allowed, what has to go through a withdrawal period, just like with food animals. For those of you that know, you, you can use certain substances, but you have to withdraw them with a certain period. Same thing with competitive horses. There's certain substances they allow, but they have to be withdrawn with a certain period or within a certain period before the horse is allowed to compete. So that's something that you really, really, really need to be aware of if you're going to go into those particular arenas. Um, with school horses or lesson horses, as, as Seb referred to, you need to have a conversation with the, the, uh, the, the particular trainer that's in charge so that you'll know the things that they're looking to avoid. Um, it may vary from school to school. I know like in some schools you want to make sure like if you're treating topical, like if you're treating atopic dermatitis in a horse, which they can get it just like a dog. You want to make sure if you do any type of topical preparations, you don't have anything that's going to affect the tack in a negative manner. And for those of you that don't know what tack is, tack is the saddle, the girth, which is what holds the saddle on as well as, you know, your, your bridle, et cetera, your reins, all of that. You've got all kinds of tack or equipment that are that's used and it depends on the individual discipline as to what tack is used so you want to make sure you don't want to use anything that's going to degrade the tack or make it slip because lord forbid saddle come off <laughs> that's not a good thing so you want to watch those type of things you don't want to you want to make sure the drugs that are used are not drugs that are going to um 
affect the horse's performance in a negative manner. So you don't want things that are going to make them drowsy or, you know, drugged. So just make sure you cover all of that stuff with the individual trainer. I'm going to stop and say, wow, because I I thought this was going to be far less complex. So, (laughs) and, and not to discourage anybody. I just think it's, it's unbelievable to say that, you know, equine compounding falls within the realm of veterinary compounding. This is completely separate. It's it's yeah. treating a completely different animal, obviously, um, but in a completely different way, and and taking so many different things into consideration. So, if you think about even with horses like that work on the police force, you know the veterinarian they they treat so many different species, and usually equine practitioners that's all they do is equine, right, Sebastian? Usually they don't branch out into other species because it is so complex. I'm sorry, I was nodding my head. I'm saying everyone's on the Zoom call with us, but yeah, you <laughs> you see a vet who specializes in large animals, equine, like that's yeah. their their yeah. jam. So the pharmacist is just like the pharmacist in a human in the human world. We are basically their second set of eyes. So, like if they prescribe something, they may have forgotten. Lord forbid they've forgotten this, but this horse is a a member of the police force, and they're maybe prescribing something that is for pain and they've forgotten, oh, this is going to sedate this horse. Well, you don't want a police horse sedated because when they need to go, they need to go and they need their horse to be on when they need, you know, when they're doing the job. So the pharmacist is going to be that second set of eyes that would say, hey, you know, maybe we need to look at this one again because this has an adverse effect of, you know, sedation, which we don't want with this particular horse because of his job. And I think, you know, I had mentioned um, in the blog that I wrote about, you always want to know what the horse's job is. So th- what we're talking about right here is an ex- a very good explanation of why you need to know what that horse does. Because a schooling horse, if they need some type of pain medication, usually they can give them what's necessary and they can pull that horse out of the rotation of lessons and allow them to you know, be stable so that they can recover appropriately. So, you know, but with a police horse, that may not be the case. So Deb, the first thing that comes to mind is you know, we've, we've covered the specifics, a lot of the things that um, people take into consideration when dealing with horses in general. My question would be more so obviously going back to marketing and focusing uh, you know, their efforts from a sales point of view. Where, where and how um, and what basically do they have to do to kind of open their eyes that there is an opportunity within their community to focus on, on this niche market because it is so highly specialized and, you know, a compounding pharmacy in Manhattan or in downtown San Francisco is really not going to have too many equine opportunities. But for the most part, most areas of the country do have the, the benefit of having horses nearby. So it's probably a loaded question, but, you know, thinking about the marketer in mind or the sales approach in mind and how to focus on it, how would you do it and what would you do? Okay, if it were me, what I would do is first try to find if there's any stables in the area around or any type of, you can Google riding lessons, specifically horseback riding lessons to to filter out motorcycle riding lessons (laughs) because I found that out the hard way. Um, But find the riding stables in the area. And then from there, you can locate your local equine vets. Now, in a more metropolitan area, you may have to go a little bit further out. 
because when you're when you are keeping horses, you're going to have to have a little bit of land. So you don't see it in the metropolitan areas because land is more taken up by buildings, etc. So I would find that stable. That stable in turn can connect you with a veterinarian that takes care of their horses because any you know even if it's just a single horse owner, they're going to have to have some type of veterinary care, and it's going to have to be specialized veterinary care. So you would contact the vet through there, and then. I would go in there just like we do with dogs and cats and ask them, is there something that you have need of that you can't get? Can I help you? And you basically open that door. Or if you don't want to go that route, see if you can find a horse show that is nearby and go in there and you can talk to people. Most people love to talk about their horses. And so you can ask about the horse, get to know that person and say, well, who is your veterinarian, by the way? And just kind of get names from that. It's basically networking, just like we do with any other form of marketing. Um, if, if, you know, you find a stable, you can't quite find the veterinarian, find the farrier or the blacksmith. They, the, the horses have to have shoes. They have to have someone to take care of their hooves. So that's another person that could possibly contact you. Um, if you have a vet school in your state, I would recommend contacting your College of Veterinary Medicine. Now, they're going to have um, staff there that take care of horses. That would be a good resource. Also, the um, most veterinary professional organizations have state and county chapters. Um, I know, like, there is the American Association of Equine Practitioners which they do have a website. You can find your local practitioners through there. That would probably be the easiest way to find a veterinary, uh, an equine veterinarian is through that. And then just introduce yourself because all, all vets need some type of compounder. They can, I've had so many veterinarians tell me they can't practice without a compounder. So that's why, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to open that door. A lot of them don't even know that you exist until you introduce yourself to them. So go do that. Deb, you know, thinking about a setup of a pharmacy, thinking about a lab, uh, my guess is that not too much needs to change from a USP 795 regulatory framework. Because we're not talking about a complete revamp of your lab simply because you are now making or preparing medications for horses. Uh, knowing that there's different types of dosage forms, sometimes in larger quantities, uh, what are some of the more common things that you've seen made and, you know, keeping flavoring into consideration? Is that also something that is extremely important given the fact that some horses can be picky as well? Right. So I like to call them large children or large pediatric patients because they have preferences just like kids do. And so let's talk about oral medication, Mike, since you're asking me about dosage forms, probably one of the more common forms are oral pace. That's probably to me and Sebastian, you can jump in here if you think, but I think it's probably one of the more easy dosage forms to administer to a horse. Um, you can also do powders, which can be added to the, to their feed. So like their, their normal feed that you'll see in a horse's stall in a bucket, their sweet feed. Usually it can be added into that. And it's real simple. Basically you have your active, you have some silica gel, and then you have your flavored powder and your sweetener. Usually, it's some type of a sucrose or confectioner sugar that's going to um, that's going to be used to sweeten. 
Um, you can also do oral suspensions, but you have to be careful with oral suspensions. There, there's a little bit of a trick to doing those. Um, horses, they tend, they don't spit, they don't vomit, which is a really interesting fact about them. But if they don't like the way something tastes and it's a liquid, they will basically lower their head and let it run out of their mouth. So the way to avoid that is to make your suspensions thicker and so that it kind of sticks in their mouth, almost like, I won't say the consistency of peanut butter, but you want to make it thicker to where that, the potential for that happening is much, much less. And then one of my more favorite oral forms is the oat-based treat. Real simple treat. It accommodates a lot of active. So your treat itself is 60 grams. So you can do up to 30% of that weight in active. And it's a great little dosage form. Most, most horses love this because it's very sweet and it has oats in it. So really good option there. Um, Go ahead. I'm going to jump in. I was going to say, we, I know that our formulations that we have on our, on our website our general mm -hmm. form because there's just so many different drugs that we can administer in those different fashions. So if you're looking for a specific drug form in that, I would actually get you to just refine your search back to the delivery system only. Oh, I want to do an oat treat. I want to do a horse equine paste, like literally type in equine or uh, vet and then kind of cross reference against equine because you're, you're, some of the, like there's drugs that we don't even use normally. Like I'm thinking about sputilicin or, things like this, where it's just like, if you don't know the drug, you're not going to find it, and we might have a different way of delivering it, so. Yes, thank you, Sebastian. Let's Good point. Yeah, great point, because, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and usually that's what I try to do is point people in that direction. Thank you for adding that in, Sebastian. That's a very, very good point. Um, so what? let's talk about things we shouldn't do for horses, okay? So, I get a common question, can we do this in a fixed oil suspension for a horse? Well, if you think about a horse and their diet, oils are not a normal part of their diet, and it's not advisable to give them something that is not a normal part of their diet. So horses, basically, they're herbivores, so oil is not a normal part of their diet, and their digestive system is very, very delicately balanced. It's like a fermentation tank, so for those of you that are familiar with rabbits, their digestive tract is very similar to that of a rabbit. So you don't want to do anything that's going to upset the normal flora. Um, so oils are not a good option for them. Um, speaking of things that we shouldn't do, I get calls all the time about asking if we can do an omeprazole paste. I highly advise people not to do this because there is a commercially available product, Gastrogard, and we do not want to copy. Um, that particular product has a patented buffer system, which is appropriate for the equine stomach. It is super difficult to try to duplicate that, and I don't recommend that you try. People have tried to do it in pace. People have tried to do it in suspensions. It did not work, so please, please, please do not do that. Um, I've got a couple of others, and this is also one thing that I learned about that world, especially with horses, is uh, understanding the weight and the size of the animal is also going to be very crucial to any sort of dosing considerations because everything in the animal world, just like pediatrics, is weight-based. And there can be a huge variation in the size of these horses. Like, I, th I think they're called draft horses, and they're like small elephants. And then you have yes. some, other, some other sort of, like you said, um, riding lesson horses, which might actually be a little bit smaller in comparison and then you've got racehorses which have very dis discreet needs so 
weight-based, uh, understanding the horse, uh, the actual kind of usage of the horse, and even the age of the horse can actually come into play and, and knowing what the expectations are of the vet are, are also key pieces. And then also, I think Chris has said this probably, um, he, he says this all the time, and I think he oversays this, but it's actually a really important thing is that if you're a horse, you're going to overdo everything in comparison to what humans do. So if you're going to over be sick, you're going to over heal, and you're going to over you're going to over um, react if things are going wrong. So we have to be much more on top of our game as pharmacists when we're treating in the equine world, and and we do need that education. That's why I was asking that first. So mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought up these points about the the microflora, not giving uh, oils, um, being aware of the sensitivity and things we don't want to step on in the patent world. I cannot stress this enough. Our regulatory people will will back us up on this as you do not step on a gastroguard patent. That that is a landmine that will take you out completely. So can't stress that enough. Yeah, so, totally agree. Uh, I, I I do have like I what's really funny is like we could probably start talking about all these different cases with horses. Um, but I'm gonna ask you what's your favorite equine pharmacy story that works in between the two? Because it's always kind of the fun one is to kind of give people an understanding of how rewarding this practice can be. So it's actually, <laughs> it actually involved a donkey, believe it or not. It was not. <laughs> well, no, it was a mule, excuse me. Excuse me, it was a mule. They're in the equine family. <laughs> this is an actual donkey. Okay. This, this is an actual, well, it was actually a mule, but it actually was one of our members' mules. And remember me talking earlier about the, the dangers of gates and fences and all this stuff? So this was a very simple but very, very satisfying uh, case. So we, he had tried all kinds of things. So basically the, the mule had ripped open up his barrel and for the, and on the bottom half of his barrel. And for those of you who don't know what a barrel is, it's basically their, their midsection, their belly basically is what it is. Um, and so he had tried everything. The vet had tried everything. They had tried bandaging to try to get this to close and it just would not close. And so he called me and he says, he says, Deb, look, I, he's my, my mule. I just cannot get this to close. We can't keep bandages on him. He keeps ripping them off. What can we do? First thing I thought of was a polyox bandage. Oldie goldie, but it works beautifully. And we, what we did is we put an antibiotic in there and did it for about seven to 14 days. It slowly started closing. Then he started after the, the course of like seven days, he took the antibiotic out and we just did the plain polyox bandage. That thing closed completely. He was so, the vet was like open mouth shot because he didn't think it was going to work. And that individual case got that particular member so much wound care business just from something simple like that. So don't forget about your oldie goldie formulas. They're beautiful when it comes to things like this. That's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna jump in with any of my stories because I don't wanna steal any of Chris's thunder. Chris has got a, just a number of those stories. You could pretty much talk to any of our consultants about this and they'll always have an equine story and how they got involved and what happened. And it is a really interesting part of practice. It is definitely a niche part but it is one of the kind of uh, more exciting parts of the world. Like a lot of times people bring in the pictures of their horses or you can go to the farm and see these animals. And if you do get involved with the, the police world, like their horses are big and impressive and 
yeah, there's there's just a ton of options there. So, anyways, thank you so much, Deb. I'm I'm going to hand this back over to Mike because I'm sure he's got a couple of follow up questions or what we're going to go. Well, thanks, Deb, and and thanks, Deb. Like I said in the middle of the podcast as well, it's been eye opening to learn that there's things that are just done so differently, and and I think for the most part, people probably get a bit overwhelmed and realize that you know because this is so different. Um, they, they might not want to throw their hat in the ring and potentially compound for a large animal like a horse. Do you see a lot of individuals potentially bring you concerns or challenges at the clinical services level? Because that's, at the end of the day, part of your major responsibility with PCCA is managing calls. Do you tend to see yourself taking a lot more of these large animal calls or is it a, pretty much a mix of everything? It's a mix of everything, and but it's funny because I see a lot more of the, the equine calls coming to me for some strange reason. So, <laughs> but, and Sebastian is my colleague. I will bounce things off of him sometimes just because of his background. He's had so much, you know, life experience with horses. So, but yeah, I tend to do more um, a mixture. So dog, cat, everything, the occasional exotic but yeah, I do. I, um, you were asking about cases, about helping with something and probably the most dramatic cases. And I, this was not one of my cases. So I'm going to steal one of Chris's cases that I think kind of makes a point as to what we can really, really do with horses. Um, so basically, especially you probably remember this story. There was, um, there was a, a huge fire in Australia not, not recently. This was several years ago. 2017 when all of this happened but a significant area in Queensland got burned and there was a lot of ranch land there and of course when the fire came through fires from just looking at what happened in California can go through very quickly and a lot of times you don't have enough time to get animals and they can get burned well these particular horses got burned in the fire and Fortunately, there's a vet school in the area, the University of Adelaide, and the owners have brought the horses in to see to see the veterinarians because they had gotten burned so, so badly. And the, the member that worked with that particular vet school, they called PCCA USA to get some help on this. And so these horses, they had burns on their face, chest, on their legs, everywhere. And we followed a few of these horses. Um, what we did was we did a combination of um, Tranolac 2% and um, Pentoxifilin 2% and then we put it in a 50-50 mixture of Pracosil Plus and Paloxamer and to cover these areas because we wanted something that was going to hear better but we also wanted something that contained the Pracosil Plus. The Procraxia oil in that particular base actually helps reduce inflammation and as Sebastian was talking about earlier, horses overdo everything. And so whenever they're healing, because they're herd animals, their body tries to heal quickly so that they're able to get away from the prey. So when they're healing from wounds like this, you'll have what's called prow flesh, which is basically overgrowth of the granulation tissue in the wound. And so that was a huge concern. So using that formula, we addressed the inflammation with the pentoxifilin as well as the wound restructuring in healing process and then also with the Pracosil. So over a period of several months, we followed a horse. This horse healed completely in no proud flesh 
And like within about an eight to 12 month period, their hair actually grew back and you could barely tell where they were burned. And I've got, I've shown these pictures at vet symposiums before, but it's a huge, huge testimony as to what we can do in the equine world. So that's why I say wound care, things like that are very underserved, but you can make a very dramatic impact with not a whole lot of effort. And so I usually recommend people pursue that first with their veterinarians that take care of horses. That's an awesome, awesome account and awesome story to share. Cause I know a lot of people will probably wonder where there's a tremendous benefit and think that for the most part, everything is quite simple, but they don't realize the true benefit of customized medications for these horses and, and how they can change a role in their lives. So it's, it's so cool to hear because I think everybody's mindset is always on the human patient. And we always want to hear, you know, how somebody's life has been changed. And, and this is a perfect example that it's, it could be a large animal and a large pet as well. So Deb, I know we have uh, the C4 Veterinary Symposium coming up. Um, is there anything that you would leave our listeners with knowing that this is another good opportunity to potentially further their education and further their knowledge in not only equine compounding, but veterinary compounding in general? I would highly recommend your attendance virtual this year. So you can listen in the comfort of your own pharmacy or home, depending upon where you are at the time. But what's really nice about this year's conference is that we have one, two, three, three veterinarians. We have one or two, plus we have a farrier. You're going to get actually equine compounding options. So Chris is actually going to have us out to his farm where he has a couple of horses and he's going to have the farrier come out there. And so you'll get to actually, for those of you who are not familiar with the environment of the horse and the things that the, the equine veterinarian does, as well as the farrier, you're going to be able to see this firsthand. We're also going to have exotics. Um, Dr. Riggs, who is a huge speaker for us, who um, does a lot of exotic veterinary practice. He's going to come speak for us as well as Dr. Minson, who does, he does domestic animals like dogs and cats, but he also does reptiles and he has a wonderful sense of humor. So lots of entertainment there. So I highly recommend. And then of course, Chris and I will speak as well as Mark Gonzalez. So I think it's going to be a great symposium. So don't miss it. Well, that's, that's awesome. And great way to kind of tee it up because it is virtual this year. We normally have some pretty cool venues, whether it was the you know, Houston Zoo, we've been in San Diego before. Um, I think we've been in SeaWorld at one point in the past. So we've always had some really cool venues, but it sounds like we're going to try to take um, all the cool aspects of, of you know, Chris's farm and, and what that looks like to give people a much better understanding of some of the environments and some of the surroundings that are impactful for, for most animals. So th thanks for doing that and thanks for kind of teeing that up. I'm surprised. Seb is not on that agenda as well. I didn't re even realize myself after knowing Seb for such a long time that he has all this equine experience. I, he's always been the LDN pain management guy, uh, functional medicine, and now all of a sudden I find out that he's also an equine expert. It, it's, it's not an expert. I would defer to Chris and, and Deb, and I learned so much from them and our clinical services team. I was just very fortunate to work with so many vets in Vancouver and all throughout British Columbia. There's actually a town called Vanderhoof that we sent a lot of our vet products to. <laughs> so it's always a funny thing. So 
But yeah, I, I again, I, I, I feel very fortunate that I get to work with such amazing caliber, talented individuals that have got such depth of experience. So, Deb, thank you for joining us. This was, this was very, very enlightening. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks, Deb. Welcome back. And it was awesome having you back on the podcast. And I would say on the, on the note of a virtual conference, um, our international seminar this coming fall, obviously we're approaching November and that's the, uh, the famous time of the year where our international seminar normally takes place. And this year, international seminar is also virtual and we are bringing a host of amazing speakers, speakers that have never spoken for PCCA on our stage before. And this is going to be a tremendous opportunity for those of you that are willing to, to buy into education and learn more about, I would say, multidisciplinary topics across the world of compounding, whether it's gut health, whether we're looking at um, things like biological dentistry, some very different topics, diff different, different focal points. And we also have about 16 hours of workshops that will be available to you as well, where you have the chance to uh, have those recordings post-event, and you'll be able to rewatch everything for about six months. So it's just a tremendous opportunity to not necessarily have to leave your pharmacy, leave your town, and come to Houston. This, this year, we're bringing the event to you, and um, definitely looking forward to seeing the international seminars or virtual conference as well, given the, the times that we, we are in. But once again, to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We ask that you please follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And as always, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. This is Mike Alicio, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>